to the Progress Podcast for the 20th of September. We are just 10 days away from the biggest show in Progress history, and that means it is Wembley Preview Time Part 1. That's right, the biggest show of the year, the biggest show in English independent wrestling history demands a two-part preview. So this week we're going to preview half the card. We didn't want to shortchange any of the matches. I mean, this is a show of main events. This card is insane. So we're going to get to half the card next week. We're going to cover half of it this week. We're going to talk about two of those personal rivalries in progress history coming to a head and two of the title clashes. I'm, of course, Calum Leslie, joined, as always, by the wonderful Lady J. Hello, Callum. How are you? I am good. Of course, last week we were here with Debbie and Al talking Freedom's Road. That was really fun. It was a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoyed it. But we're back on your regularly scheduled programming of previews. Progress previews, progress podcast previews programming. Are you finished? Possibly. I've only only (laughs) just begun. And we've only just begun because we got four matches to talk about today. Are you excited? Callum, let's, let's start with the one with the most people in it. I mean, that seems like only appropriate, right? Yeah. We should go, we should order these matches in descending order of number of participants. Sure. And of course, we should get all of the uh, the spreadsheet stuff out of the way before people fall asleep at the end. (laughs) And it's the only way to make them listen to it. They got to keep, got to power through the spreadsheet stuff to get to the main event. Uh, one of the many main events on this card. But let's kick it off. We're going to talk about the Tag Team Title Thunderbastard, the first ever Tag Team Thunderbastard. We are going to have one of our signature matches involving our tag team division. We are going to have a tag team Thunderbastard match at Wembley Arena. The Grizzly Drunk Veterans will go in it, and they're joined by six other fantastic teams. They are joined by Aussie Open, Mark Davis and Kyle Fletcher, Connor Mills and Maverick Mayhew, the Anti-Fun Police, CCK, Mark Haskins and Flash Morgan Webster, Sexy Star. Well, that was the announcement back in May of the Tag Team Thunderbastard series, and of course, things have changed since then. It's now the Calamari Thatch Kings in place of CCK, and the 198 in place of Flash Morgan Webster and Mark Haskins. After four months of matches between these seven teams slash eight teams, we now have a completed Tag Team Thunderbastard series, which was all leading up to this match. Really... Everything they've done today, only mat- or done to this point, only matters a tiny little bit. Because at the end of the day, there are eight teams with a chance to leave Wembley with the tag team titles. Callum, thinking about this match in retrospect, right? Not just from when it was first announced, but to the first time I ever saw a Thunder Bastard match sometime in early 2017 when I was watching through all of Progress. I remember thinking to myself, not only how much fun it would be, but how completely insane it would be if they did one of these matches with tag teams and kind of got what we wanted because now we're going to get one at Wembley and it features some of Progress's favorite tag teams of all time. So I'm very excited. Jay, do you want to run us down uh, how these guys all shook out? Yes, I would love to do that. So here we go. Are you ready, Callum? I'm ready. Because you you have the spreadsheet, so you have to correct me if I'm wrong, okay? Of course. 
Okay, so we're going to start with the last team technically to enter into the Thunder Bastard series, which is your current Progress Tag Team Champions, World Tag Team Champions, Flamita and Bandito. Is that correct? Correct. Good. Excellent. They will be joined in the ring for the beginning of the match with the team who unfortunately had to forfeit several of their matches in Germany. Sexy star, correct? Correct. A record of one and five, just two points. Yikes. But, you know, I think it'll be really fun to see Sexy Star in there with Flamita and Bandino to get this match started. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's I, it's a long mountain to climb. I don't think, uh, particularly Jack Sexsmith, he knows what it's like to be an underdog. So I don't know he would have it any other way in this th- tight team Thunder Bastard. And we'll get some very interesting combinations of styles, especially when you add in the third team, who are younger guys, but have a very different style compared to a team like Flamita and Bandito, and that is Mills and Mayhew. Yeah, I mean, one of the matchups that I was most intrigued to see in this tag team Thunder Bastard was seeing Flamita and Bandito lock horns with Mills and Mayhew. That could be absolutely crazy. Yeah, it could be really fun. And I'm sure that those two kids are going to have a great time in there with all of the variety of talent that they've already had to encounter along the way. And as you said, get to lock horns with uh, Flamito and Bandito for the very first time. They will eventually be joined in the ring by Aussie Open. Yeah, Aussie Open. Of course, Mark Davis coming off the Thunder Bastard, ta- the, the Natural Progression Series win. Aussie Open had a great tour, uh, picking up singles wins, picking up tag wins, including a win at the end over Eminem in Frankfurt, which wasn't in the series. It was just kind of for bragging rights going in. Aussie Open, they didn't have the greatest record in the series itself, but they've got momentum going into the match. Yeah, I'm very excited to see how all of this is going to shake out, especially when you consider the fact that Mark Davis is still sitting on that uh, that world's title shot with his Natural Progression Series win. Um, following Aussie Open into this match will be the Anti-Fun Police. Man, the Anti-Fun Police, they had an incredible Germany tour. They really won over those crowds, particularly in Frankfurt in that match against the Calamari Thatch Kings, but came up short. In that final match, they did get a win over Eminem in Oberhausen and, of course, the default win over Sexy Star in Hamburg. They kind of backloaded their points, but they end up in fourth place mid-table. Not a bad showing for the Chief and Los Federales Santos Jr. Yeah, I feel really good about where they ended up falling in the entrances of teams in this match, especially when you consider they basically barely had debuted in progress when they ended up put into this series. So they managed to make such a great showing so early on in their career with progress that the powers that be decided they deserved an opportunity and they definitely made the most of it. So this is pretty good. Yeah, they were kind of a uh, wild card in the whole thing, right? We would only seen them once before, uh, particularly Santos was a, a complete wild card, but really has come good and actually picked up a couple of pinfall victories for his team. Yep, and they are going to be followed by the former Progress World Tag Team Champions, the Grizzled Young Veterans, who aren't doing so great right now. Man, I don't even know what's going on with the Grizzled Young Veterans. Their big strength has always been they've been on the same page. That They train together, that they live together, they run a school together. From the minute they teamed up, they had incredible chemistry, and that was what set them apart, is they managed to hit that stride of chemistry without being predictable because no one had seen them team before. They had such little tape to watch when they were going up against the Brazilian veterans and and that's what led to the vets becoming two-time progress tag team champions they lost those titles in the u.s tour they went on a losing skid they're still struggling they got a win over eminem at chapter 75 and a win in seattle against uh the american guns but 
they've been on a losing streak ever since. They lost to the 198 in Hamburg as well. And uh, things were not going well between them after that. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what's going on with the Grizzled Young Veterans, and you know how I feel about them, but I'm concerned maybe they've spent so much time together that they've started to get on each other's nerves, and maybe that's part of what's driving them apart. Plus, there's been some focus lately on Zach Gibson's ability to compete in singles competition, so maybe that is also driving some sort of disconnect between the two of them if James Drake feels like Zach's getting more opportunities than he is. Yeah, that's, uh, I wonder how that was going to shake out. I mean, James Drake is a very ambitious guy too, but yeah, Zach Gibson is certainly the star of the team and maybe that's where some of that tension comes from. Well, you give that man a microphone and everything else just sort of melts away. They're going to be followed into the Thunder Bastard series by the seventh team, the seventh entrant, the Calamari Thatch Kings. I love this team of Tim Thatcher and Chris Brooks. They only came together for three matches at the back end of the series. It was a two and one record. Wins of Rosie opening the Antifan Police and that loss to the 198. But sick thatching tag moves. I'm all in on it. I'm all in on the relationship between these two. I'm all in on Chris Brooks pretty clearly looking for the approval of Tim Thatcher. Rather than being the leader in the team that he certainly was with Kid Lycos, the dynamic is totally different. He clearly looks to Tim Thatcher as an ex- uh, an example to follow in certain things, like striking, like submissions. And you see, when he hits strikes in the ring, he's turning to Tim and going, is that good? Is that good? I think It's a different motivation for Chris Brooks. And so far, I think it's working for him. I think that... Chris Brooks has always been a great leader and a great mentor and has done a lot of really interesting things in the British wrestling scene in terms of being at the forefront of stuff. But him and Timothy Thatcher actually have a lot of things in common. Their passion for wrestling comes from very similar places, their love of Japanese wrestling. And so I can see why he looks to Timothy Thatcher for approval when they get in the ring together. But I'm so happy to see that the dynamic is working out really well for both of them and that we're getting such interesting matches out of the two of them, regardless of who they get in the ring with. So I think they're going to be a very interesting um pair to see step in there together i'm excited to see them and hopefully maybe mills and mayhew will still be around by the time cck get in there and we can get a little little grappling going on you know how much i love a nice grapple so <laughs> Mayhew gonna be turned into a pretzel yeah they are the team with the least experienced teaming together but that also makes them the least predictable they could pose a problem a little bit of a puzzle to solve for all their opponents And finally, the last team that's going to be entering because they went undefeated in the Tag Team Thunder Bastard series leading up to this match is, in fact, the 198. Yes, 6 and 0 undefeated against all these teams. The only team to beat the Calamari Thatch Kings, and they dispatched every other team who stood in their way. Now, of course, three of those matches were Flash Morgan Webster and Mark Haskins, but I think we've seen with the Wild Boar Mike Hitchman he had the three toughest assignments in his stint with the 190. He had Aussie Open, he had uh, the Grizzly Young Vets, and the Calamari Thatch Kings. I've been very impressed with Wildborn Mike Hitchman. I think he silenced any doubts that people had that he could come in and live up to what Flash and Haskins had achieved to that point in the series. He's very dangerous. Flash Morgan Webster incredibly motivated to taste gold in progress for the first time. 
So what I think is interesting about the 198, though, in comparison to all these other teams, while they have been very successful and, as you mentioned, very dangerous with their finishing moves and everything, they're also the only team who actually has to worry about an outside influence from someone who's not a part of this Thunderbastard series. And that influence has a name, and her name is Vicky Haskins. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear from the U.S. tour that the issues between the Haskinses and Flashmark and Webster are very much not over. The Haskinses were not on the Germany tour, and perhaps that meant the 198 could put that to one side and, and not have to have eyes in the back of their head. But we know that Vicky and Mark are going to be at Wembley, as is Jimmy Havoc. So there could be a lot of people coming for Flashmark and Webster. Yeah, if I were Flash, I would do everything I can to make sure that I stay focused on what's happening in the match, but also try to put as much space between myself and Vicky and Mark Haskins as humanly possible. We're going to talk about Mark on next week's episode and what he's going to be doing at Wembley, but just knowing that he's going to be there and of course Vicky's going to be with him could potentially be very dangerous for Flash and for Wild Boar. Yeah, <laughs> you got to watch out for that barbed wire back. Got to keep Arabella close and Vicky Haskins <laughs> is around. Be very careful, Bumblebee. You never know what might happen next. And I mean, so, when, when are we going to get that mixed tag match, Jay? When are we going to get it? Mark, um, Mark and Vicky versus Flash, versus and, Flash Arabella. and Arabella. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the one. I want it. That's the one that I want. That's you know, Wembley 2. Not even Wembley 2. I hope that it's a surprise match at unboxing this year. That would be pretty good. <laughs> sure. Uh, so that's our Thunder Bastard uh, tag match, Callum. So I got to ask you, who do you see coming out as the winner in this one? Oh, man. I mean, obviously the favorites are the 198. You you have to make them the favorites. They've beaten every other team in this match apart from Flamingo and Bendito, but they beat all of the six Thunder Bastard series competitors. But you have to ask, does that mean they've given away everything they know how to do? Have they given away their game plans for beating all of these teams? And actually, I think, and I, and I don't want to necessarily, I might be stealing your thunder here, Jay, <laughs> but if I were to pick a team that I think is dangerous and motivated and, and perhaps in the foulest mood that they've ever been in, I'm going to say I think the Grizzled Young Vets are going to win the tag team titles at Wembley. I think they're unassuming in mid-table. They're going to come in. People are going to be forgetting about them, thinking about the, the Thatch Kings and the 198 coming in towards the end. They're going to clean up that early streak, and then they're going to get revenge on the two top teams. I mean, I have to tell you, Callum, I mostly agree with you. However, I think that the team that I'm putting my money behind is actually the anti-fun police. You crazy, and Jay. So hear, hear me out, though. So the anti-fun police are coming in fifth. Like, we're, we're going to call it fifth since one and two are actually basically coming out and starting the match as one, right? So they're coming in fourth out of seven, let's say. So they're coming in in a nice spot where some of the teams are already going to be fairly exhausted, like your current champions, Lamina and Bandito and Eminem, and there might even be an elimination by the time that they get in there. But I also know that the Chief and Santos Jr. work so well together as a team. They know each other incredibly well. They they work all over the place, not just in progress. And I have faith in them that they will be able to communicate in a way to keep themselves in the match for as long as possible. So I would say that I really, really want the anti-fun police to win, but I also would definitely put money on them being in the last two teams in this match. 
while all the titles are being defended at Wembley on September the 30th. And we're going to get to our second title match of this episode. And it's all about the Queen. 2018 is the year that Ginny finally got crowned the Queen of the Progress Women's Division. And a Queen always recognises an heir to the throne. And right now in this division, there is no one who can step up to the challenge to face the true queen. So that's why I'm gonna issue a challenge to anyone around the world who thinks they can go toe to toe with the true queen. Yas queen, it is going to be the current women's champion, Ginny, versus her longtime rival, Tony Storm, and a young woman who has had an incredible 2018 in Millie McKenzie. Yeah, this is such an interesting dynamic between these two challengers. They're two who have sort of been on the same page. They were supposed to be in that eight-woman tag team match at Chapter 75 before Tony got hurt. She's coming back from that injury to compete at Wembley. We've seen Tony and Ginny wrestle so many times. So, so many times across the world. In so many countries, they're facing off against each other. But this is the biggest stage they've ever done it at. A lot of people thought it might be the one-on-one rematch here at Wembley from, of course, that match back at Chapter 69 where Ginny won the women's title. But Millie McKenzie grabbed that opportunity at Chapter 75, grabbed the Wembley-shaped brass ring, and <laughs> booked herself a shot as number one contender. And that was the situation. It was potentially going to be Ginny versus Millie McKenzie number one-on-one if Tony wasn't able to be fit. But she is cleared. It's going to be two challengers for Ginny. But the Heights of Couture are going to be at ringside. Right. This is not actually a three-way match when you think about it. There are a lot more people who are going to be at ringside who could potentially be major players in the course of this match. And I have no idea what's going to happen because as much as I know that the House of Couture has been backing Ginny up, we've seen some like weird little cracks in that whole faction. And so I imagine there are going to be some potential problems if Ginny can't keep all of her ladies in line. Yeah, I love to look at these kind of things. And when we saw the announcement that there was going to be a five-way scramble at Chapter 75, the reactions of Charlie Morgan and Chikara, that's what I was looking for. Chikara, she had no interest. She is under under the learning tree of the Queen, has been since January. She's very invested in the House of Couture. Charlie Morgan, she's a little bit more out for herself. And I think it's pretty clear at this point that Charlie Morgan is part of the House of Couture to serve Charlie Morgan's interests. She thinks that's the best place for her to be. It was the best place for her to get, you know, a spot as a regular in progress. And she potentially could have used it to leverage her way into the Wembley main event. She was well up for that scramble match. She came up short. So now she's going to back up Ginny again and hope that being friends with Ginny gets her another title shot down the line. And for all we know, maybe Charlie Morgan thinks that she's got a better chance of beating Millie McKenzie. So maybe she won't do nearly as much if it looks like Millie's going to get the pinfall because Charlie thinks that if Millie wins, she can beat her. So there's a lot of different things that are at play here and that if I am part of the House of Couture, I'm going to be having to keep an eye on Charlie Morgan and making sure that she's in line just as much as I'm going to have to make sure that I'm backing up the queen. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of moving parts with the House of Couture at ringside. And it's always chaotic. Don't be surprised if you see some other people, you know, the likes of Candy Floss, perhaps, or even Laura De Matteo making their presence felt to try and neutralize that threat and keep it a fair fight. But we have seen that Janie can get it done in a fair fight. When she was on the Germany tour and on the US tour, she didn't have the House of Couture with her. And she still managed to come out 
each of those tours as champion. She technically lost in a three-way with Killer Kelly and Alpha Female, but she wasn't actually involved in the decision. She was then able to turn back Killer Kelly in a title match in Oberhausen. And then, in kind of a curveball surprise opponent, she turned back Chris Wolfe in Frankfurt in another women's title match. So that's more successful defenses for Ginny. I think she's establishing herself more and more as a dominant champion that doesn't necessarily need the House of Couture, but I think she wants to do things this way. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said for Ginny wanting to be a leader for the women's division in progress, not just to be the queen, but I think she is taking great pride in building the rest of the division sort of in her own image, and that's what's happening, I I think, with the House of Couture. It's not even so much a, a mentoring kind of thing, but she feels like a lot of the women who have been competing against her over the course of the several years that she's been part of the progress roster, that they've been they haven't been to her standards. And so she's going to establish the rest of the division to meet her standards. And that's where the House of Couture comes from. So it's not entirely selfish, but it is in a very Ginny sort of way. It is indeed a very Ginny way of doing things. Jay, we have to move on because we have to leave time for both of these huge matches to close out this first part of the Wembley preview to very, very personal rivalries many many months in sometimes years in the making depending on who you ask but we're going to start first with tables ladders and chairs oh my standing in the ring the new number one oh my god Eddie Dennis just hit the September thirty. Just over a year ago, we were in Alexandra Palace, and Eddie Dennis and Mark Andrews, FSU, looked to be on the same page coming into a scramble. They made an entrance together, they were working together. Mark Andrews even tried to give Eddie Dennis a pinfall to make Eddie Dennis the number one contender. But at the end of that match, after Mark had won the whole thing, Eddie turned his back on his best friend. Was it justified? You can make your arguments. I certainly have. That it goes back years. The frustration of Eddie Dennis playing second fiddle to Mark Andrews goes all the way back to the early days of progress. Was Mark Andrews just doing what was best for him? 
Is Eddie Dennis now doing what's best for him and his family? Now he's gone full time. The Barbs have been traded back and forth. These two, it's been a year in the making through injuries, through absences for band tours, through NXT appearances. We're finally going to get to it at Wembley with the number one contendership once again on the line in TLC. This is insane. This is genuinely just madness because this is an incredibly dangerous match stipulation not the number one contendership although that does tend to push people to do crazy things as we saw from eddie last year but i think the type of match that it is a tlc match also just has the potential for injury and we've just seen eddie come back from an injury um we saw what happened when mark got hurt at download festival last year like we don't want to see anything happen to either one of these guys but at the same time this is not the type of feud where there is a a more slightly more dominant force or there's a slightly more beloved character. People are so invested in both sides of this argument because it is one of the most human stories that's ever been told in wrestling. It's just two friends who are having a fight about stuff that friends have fights about all the time. It's one person who's succeeding in life, one person who's struggling in life, whether or not someone really considered their friends on their way to the place where they are now, whether or not someone didn't take the opportunities that had been presented to them and where they might have been if they had, no one is right and no one is 100% wrong. And I don't know what happens when this match is over. I don't know who becomes number one contender. And honestly, that's not the part of this match I find the most interesting. What I want to know is when this match is over, can Eddie and Mark ever be friends ever again jay for nearly a year now i've been fighting the corner of eddie dennis frankly because you know i thought people weren't necessarily giving him a fair shake and and it's always been my way to look at the history and look at the way things have shaken out and i do remember all the things that happened to eddie in the name of being mark's best friend i remember when eddie took his licks from regression tied to the ring post and forced to watch mark get beaten down by jimmy havoc i remember when eddie once again had to take his licks from regression at the bedford embalament or an endeavor show and mark was nowhere to be seen i remember eddie toiling trying to trying to make his full-time job and his part-time side hustle work while mark as eddie said was living rent free with his parents traveling the world trying to get his band off the ground, he was having the time of his life. And I think it's understandable that anyone would feel the resentment that Eddie did. I'm not going to sit here and say that I defend everything that Eddie Dennis has done, things like attacking Junior's tour manager, like attacking Mark when his back was turned. I'm not going to defend that. But you can make a case for either of these people. And I think at this point, you can see both points of view. And I think at chapter 75, when these two traded barbs, it was incredibly personal. It was incredibly real. People could tell that these two meant what they said. And I didn't hear people taking sides at that point. I just heard people be affected by how real things had got. Yeah, and I think those mo- those are the moments that people always look for in wrestling, aren't they? The moments when you feel connected to what's happening and you're not so worried about the match or the outcome or anything. You just suddenly realize, like, these are real people with real feelings and and the, the deep and dark 
place somewhere at the molten core of these individuals that all this stuff is coming from is something that everyone has inside of them in some capacity. And everyone's been hurt by their best friend and everyone's been called out by their best friend. And there's almost no story that could be told in wrestling that would be more relatable than what's happening between Mark and Eddie right now. And so, like I said, regardless of who becomes number one contender, regardless of how broken and bent these two men are after this match is are are after the match is over I really am rooting for their friendship because the journey that we've all been on with FSU is important to us as fans and so we want to see them be able to move past all of this to think that one of them will win and the other one will lose and will never see FSU as a team as friends ever again is just too much to bear. I think if this had happened last year and Mark hadn't refused to fight Eddie for so long when that was clearly what was going to happen, it was clearly what Eddie wanted and what Eddie needed. If Mark had just done it then, maybe they could have put it on side, but Mark let it fester. Like Eddie Dennis's surgical wound. It was torn open. And just left there for a year. And Eddie has got more bitter and more twisted and more angry and arguably more deranged the longer this has gone on. So Mark Andrews now finds himself stooping to that level in fighting Eddie Dennis. One of these men is going to become number one contender. And I think that perhaps means more to Eddie Dennis than it does to Mark Andrews. Mark Andrews, it is fair to say, has had his fair share of Progress World Championship matches. Former Progress World Champion, albeit for uh, the shortest reign in history, but a former Progress World Champion nonetheless. Eddie Dennis has had just one World Championship shot, and perhaps Mark was a distraction when he faced Travis Banks last December. Now he has an opportunity to put a, bo- put a bookend on this chapter against Mark Andrews, the chapter that began last September in the number one contendership match where Mark tried to hand the number one contendership to Eddie. In Wembley, Eddie can prove to Mark once and for all that he doesn't need to be handed anything. He doesn't need anything from Mark. Mark is the user, not him. That's what Eddie's going to be going out to prove, that he can win a title on his own. So does that mean that you are predicting Eddie Dennis to win this match? I think anger and jealousy and that festering tension is an incredibly powerful force. And I don't think anyone can get bet against Eddie Dennis doing anything he sets his mind to now. I really want to agree with you, Callum. I just don't. Because I think that the real Eddie Dennis is still somewhere deep inside of that. And I think that Mark Andrews is going to have to beat it out of him. But at some point, I think this match is going to be incredibly violent. I think the next match we're going to talk about, which is Jimmy Havoc and Paul Robinson, people are expecting a certain level of violence from that match because of who Paul and Jimmy are. I think this match requires a level of violence because of who Mark and Eddie are to each other. I think they're going to do some really horrible things to one another, and I hope that everyone out there is prepared to watch that happen. But I think that when the match is over, hopefully... Mark will have rescued Eddie from himself and will have proven to Eddie that he is willing to go wherever Eddie has to go in order for them to repair what once was between them. 
Well, speaking of people doing horrible things to each other, from the Welsh dragon, we have to move to the beast who was there all along. Jay, it's time for our podcast main event. I'm so ready. That is light tube spread across two chairs. Paul Robinson perhaps go for another stomp there. My God, he just curb stomped Jimmy Havoc's face through those light tubes. And that is it. Paul Robinson has just defeated Jimmy Havoc with a curb stomp through light tubes. And look at the bloody mess that is Jimmy Havoc. Jimmy fucking Havoc will Osprey. Will Osprey Jimmy fucking have This company was built on YouTube. UA Progress. This whole time you've been talking about and trying to find Jimmy fucking I just want to start the segment off by saying I was right. I knew all along that Paul Robinson was the linchpin in the story of Jimmy Havoc and Will Ospreay. I was right. I said it. But I don't think I really knew what was going to happen between Will Ospreay and Jimmy Havoc after their match was over. They seemed to part fairly amicably. But Paul seems bigger and scarier than ever before. And I'm not sure what is going to happen when him and Jimmy face off at Wembley, considering the last time the two of them faced off in the ring, Paul put him down and out. I think, you know, you made the point about Paul Robinson a number of times. I'm not going to take that away from you. You were absolutely right. Thank you. I love to hear that. If you could say it a few more times. You are absolutely right that Paul Robinson was the key player in all of this. However, I don't think you predicted, I don't think anyone could have predicted what was actually inside of Paul Robinson, the hatred that he felt and the, the disrespect that he felt watching Jimmy Havoc and Will Ospreay talk about their legacy. Yeah, that was not at all what I thought this story was, which I think is a very interesting component to this, right? Everybody knew that, like, Paul sort of sat in this middle place between Jimmy and Will, who were, who have always been on one side or the other of the good and evil that is progress, right? And sometimes it was Jimmy on the side of good, and sometimes it was Will on the side of bad, and vice versa. Well, I mean, it was, in- it, as Glenn Joseph put it in that final match, as Will Osprey was wearing the colors of the Joker. They're the Batman and Joker of progress, and no, we don't know which one is which either. Right. However, the thing that I don't think anybody really understood until we saw the way that Paul behaved after that match was over, the promo that he cut, 
or when you go back and watch the trajectory from chapter two of Jimmy Havoc all the way through progress, his 609 day title reign, you know, all the stuff that happened between him and Will up to this point. In reality, yes, the situation that unfolds with him getting Jim to sign over a title match whenever he wants it and him cashing in on that when Mark has just won the title after cashing in on Rampage Brown and all the stuff that happened after that. If you go back to when Paul turns on Will as part of the Swords of Essex before that, you realize the story that's being told there almost feels like Paul is the one who ordained Will Ospreay as the golden boy to go on to conquer Jimmy Havoc instead of Mark Andrews, who seemed like the right person since he was the one who got cashed in on in the first place. Are you suggesting in a sort of Game of Thrones style progress headcanon that Paul Robinson set Will Ospreay out on his own and gave him the motivation to eventually dethrone Jimmy Havoc? I'm saying that one day, many, many, many moons from now, when progress is dead and gone and we're all very elderly people, Paul Robinson is going to tell us all how he was in charge of basically everything, whether we realized it or not. And perhaps, maybe John Riley is a robot and the person controlling him is actually Paul Robinson. Who knows? I mean, I've said this on this podcast that the thing that and the thing that really struck me about Paul lashing out at jimmy was i felt like this was this paul robinson was gone we're, we're talking about jimmy havoc being dead and buried and gone i thought this paul robinson was gone the paul robinson that i saw backstage working as an agent on these shows seemed very content with his post full-time wrestling life he was very content in his new backstage role as, as a leader as a mentor to the young talent he was he loving it he really loved doing it, and he's been doing that for a full year. We haven't seen Paul wrestle since April of last year in progress. It's been 18 months he's been away, but now he's going to face Jimmy Havoc in a nose qualification match. And Jay, if I ask you the question, what's your favorite match in progress wrestling history? It's the match between Paul and Jimmy from Chapter 21, and will always be. Unless, of course, this one's better, in which case then it might change. The only thing that could ever top it. You said about Will Ospreay and Jimmy Havoc partying on good terms. It's such a difficult and complicated one. It's steeped in so much history and, and so much, you know, old hatred. But you felt, it felt to me anyway, that this match was out of respect for their legacy. It was a match that was about them proving that they were progress. And when they parted at the end of that and when they saw each other backstage, they didn't talk. They just sat together. And you could tell that while they didn't necessarily like each other, there was respect and an admiration that between them, they'd built an empire. And there's a really good chance that Paul's going to do everything he can to destroy that. Because I hate to say shit like this, but... They're not progress. He is. Because when he couldn't do it anymore, he didn't go away to lick his wounds like Jimmy did. And when he was at the top of his game, he didn't, you know, pardon my French, but fuck off to Japan like Will did. He's been around in progress always. 
no matter what, no matter if he could get in the ring or not. So in reality, who is the most progress out of them all? And he's a guy who always had to, you know, scrap and claw for his place. Will Ospreay was identified early on as a young talent to build around Jimmy Havoc. He was, of course, champion. He had his reign of terror. He was the most important man in British wrestling for a time. Paul Robinson only got into progress as a late replacement at Chapter 3. He was a, he came in and replaced MK McKinnon against Noam Dar and lost. And then he went into the Natural Progression series against MK McKinnon, got the win, lost to Eddie Dent, uh, beat Eddie Dennis, got all the way to the final, something he was never expected to do. Ironically, I think a lot of people thought we would see Mark Andrews and Eddie Dennis way back in Chapter 10 in the Natural Progression series final wasn't to be and and you know thankfully it's that he, these years of history have led us to here but paul robinson has had to scratch and claw for everything he never he wasn't given a world championship opportunity against will osprey he had to beat jimmy havoc and break jimmy havoc to get that world championship opportunity that match was the most violent match in progress history and i can only think that the two of them are going to try and top themselves so there's only one thing left now Callum, would you like to ask me the question? Jay, who's going to win this match? I would like for Jimmy Havoc to win this match so that he can reclaim the win that Paul took from him at Chapter 21 and reclaim his place among the best talent in progress. I don't think that's what's going to happen at Wembley, though. Oh my god, you swerved me so hard. I know. Sorry. Well, you know what? I, I I said and I've said this since the Coast to Coast tour, as the guy who doubted Jimmy Havoc more perhaps than anyone going into that Coast to Coast tour, he proved me wrong. He beat Flash Morgan Webster. He beat Ricky Shane Page. He put himself in a three and in situation. And if it wasn't for Paul Robinson, I firmly believe Jimmy Havoc would be wrestling for the World Championship at Wembley. He may have lost to Will Ospreay, but he showed me that the old Jimmy Havoc is back and alive and well. But he's not quite back to his full powers. There's one final boss. And it's kind of like... I don't know if you ever played the original Pokemon games, Jay. No, I'm too old. But after... But, it always felt like in the Pokemon games, the buildup was to challenge the Elite Four, the four best Pokemon trainers in the world. And you had to beat the Elite Four. And I remember the first time I played Pokemon, I beat the Elite Four and I thought, whew, we're done. I beat the Elite Four. My Pokemon are barely alive, but we made it. We completed the game. And then you get through the Elite Four, but you've got to face your rival one more time. That old final last opponent that you weren't expecting. And that's what this is with Jimmy Havoc and Paul Robinson. He thought Will Ospreay was the final step for him on getting back to being Jimmy fucking Havoc. It's actually Paul Robinson. And I think Jimmy Havoc's going to do it. He's a big match player. He's going to come up at Wembley. And he is going to be center stage, standing tall in the company that he built. It sounds really good, and I hope that that's exactly what happens. I just think that you're wrong. I think that Paul Robinson has been laying in wait for a really long time to get this opportunity, and I think that Paul Robinson has had enough of watching all of the people that he has beaten, all of the people that he got through when he was first starting out in progress, when he was a very vital part of regression, 
to see all those people go on and become successful, to see someone like Will Ospreay, who was his tag team partner, go on to become successful outside of even the UK, he's had enough. And I'm concerned that while Jimmy may be back to his big bad status, that all of the things inside of Paul Robinson have become so twisted and ugly that he'll do anything. And I just, knowing how willing Jimmy Havoc is to go to horrible, twisted, sadistic places, I'm just concerned that Paul is going to go there with him and will end up carrying one of them out of Wembley in a bag. I just don't know which one it's going to be. And my money, unfortunately, is not on my favorite progress wrestler, Jimmy Havoc. Well, in 10 days time, we're going to find out who comes out victorious between Paul Robinson, Jimmy Havoc, and all the other matches that we previewed on this show. Of course, that means next week, just three days before the big event, we'll be back to talk about the world title match, the Atlas title match, the final independent wrestling appearance of Matt Riddle, and the European super fight between Pete Dunne and Ilya Dragunov. It's a stacked show, and that's why we had to split it in two, because there's no way we could have spent any less time on the matches that we did today. We got to we, we could and we didn't want to do an extra long podcast so <laughs> two podcasts two previews we'll be back next week to finish off our Wembley preview by god I hope you got tickets <laughs>